before uh, the summer holidays, uh, when we were still in lockdown, uh, we considered uh, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, and he was uh, cut off from his beloved congregation at Ephesus on mainland Turkey. And uh, like us, uh, he uh, was uh, in lockdown, as it were. Uh, and yet, in spite of uh, those huge disadvantages, uh, he was there because of the persecution that the Romans were introducing. And we are in lockdown because of this virus. But John wasn't put out and he didn't just survive uh, being in lockdown for much longer than uh, we have. He actually was blessed uh, because, as we saw uh, when we were looking at this chapter in Revelation 1, he had a vision of Jesus Christ. And uh, we have uh, looked at uh, the things that he saw concerning Jesus Christ, the effect that it had on him, and the fact that this vision of Christ was Christ in the midst of the lampstands. And the lampstands are symbols of the church. Christ in the midst of the church. And I would like us to uh, take up Revelation 1 again this evening, and expand on this theme of the corporate nature of Christianity. So, whatever our state, and we will be coming out of this lockdown tomorrow, but whatever's going to happen to us, the key to a blessed life as a Christian is to know the Lord drawing near to us, not a physical vision, as John would have had, but by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ visiting us. But you know what? It's not just as individual Christians we can know this. It's as a corporate body of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. And I think it is right to say that as evangelicals, we have rightly emphasized the personal nature of the gospel. Uh, there's no one uh, who believes more than I do in the great need to preach a personal saviour, a personal need for salvation. And that is an emphasis we must never lose. But maybe as evangelicals, uh, because we have so emphasised that, we have forgotten to emphasise the fact that we're not just saved as isolated believers, but we are part of a body, the body of Jesus Christ. And we, as a result, have been weak in our view of the church. And that is so contrary to what we have in the New Testament. So in these coming Sundays, what we want to look at is... Uh, how John here uh, has, yes, this vision of Christ, and he is ravished by it and blessed by it, in spite of very difficult circumstances. But the Christ that John sees is the Christ of the church, and we are part of that church. And Christ has something to say to his church. 
And that is what we're going to look at, God willing. Uh, the uh, first chapter and chapters two and three in Revelation, where we have these letters to the churches of Asia. So uh, let's uh, look now then uh, at uh, this. What we've got in Revelation, not just uh, in chapters two and three, where you have uh, the seven letters, uh, a letter to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, that is modern day Turkey. Uh, what you've got also is a form of a letter in the whole book of Revelation. So if you turn to chapter one and verse four, verse four, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, remember, uh, John uh, was not able to meet physically with his church at Ephesus. He was the pastor of that church. But he is still enjoying fellowship with them through the spirits, spiritual fellowship. Even when we can't meet together physically, we are still knowing sweet fellowship with one another. Indeed, it could be said that uh, being in lockdown has made us more appreciative of physical meeting together. And more than that, the church is still functioning because the word of Christ is still going out. The spirit isn't locked down. The spirit is still using the word. And I believe I am right in saying uh, that during these last few months, more people have tuned in and heard the gospel than before. So we can be grateful to God, even though I'm sure we're all longing uh, to be back to some sort of normality, that the church of Christ is still going on and that there's no need to panic, uh, as some people seem to be doing. We are in God's hands and he is working together his purpose and he will bring much good out of all of this. So then, Christ in the midst of his church and his letters to the churches. But before we look at those letters, we need to look just at verse four, verse five, and maybe verse six. I don't think we'll have time tonight. Revelation is written as a letter. So not just the seven letters, but the whole book is a letter. What do you do when you have a letter? Do you still have letters? Uh, most of our correspondence comes by email these days. Well, when I used to have a letter, or when I sometimes still do, I look for two things. I look for the name of the sender, and I look to see who it's addressed to. It's easy for me because I'm the only one who lives here. But if you're living in a household with several members of the family, uh, the letter uh, is addressed to one of those. So the recipient and the author. So let's do that with Revelation. Who are the recipients first of this letter? 
uh, verse 4, to the seven churches which are in Asia. That's the first thing that John was thinking of when he was writing this book. Indeed, he'd been given a commission by the risen saviour who appeared to him in the vision a little later on. Uh, verse 11, this is what Jesus says to John. Uh, he says, what you see, write in a book or a letter and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he names each of the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So in the first place, this book is addressed to those churches. What can we say from that? Well, surely the first thing we need to say is this, the vital importance of the local church. Even though a believer, such as John, uh, or the Christians he's writing to, are part of the universal Church of Jesus Christ. We're all members of one body. There is still such a thing as a local congregation. Seven congregations are specifically named by Jesus Christ. And then in chapters two and three, he's got detailed instructions to each one of those churches. He knows uh, their struggles. He knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. Do you realise how vital it is to be part, yes, of the worldwide church, but also to be joined to a local manifestation of that? Now, let me use this illustration to try and show what I mean by that. Uh, I did some geology when I was in university, and in southeast Wales, there's one uh, dominant rock band, the old red sandstone. And it's quite vast, this old red sandstone. And it outcrops, it comes to the surface in a number of places. For example, uh, the Brecon Beacons. So even though you've got this one band consisting of the same rock, old red sandstone, it will have different outcrops. And each one of those outcrops will be of different sizes, will be in different locations, will have different characteristics. They're the same rock, the same material, and yet they're different. And it's a bit like that when we come to the church, universal, the bedrock, and then the outcrops of that church. Uh, there are different characteristics to each church. Not only is each church a different size, uh, but each church will have its own strengths and weaknesses. Each church will consist of individual believers who will come from a certain background, uh, be part of a certain culture, uh, will do things in a slightly different way, maybe dress in a different manner. And yet, it is all part of the body of Christ. It is all the spirit uh, that is producing it. And it's the same message. But there are differences. Uh, this is how Richard Brooks puts it. Uh, I think this is a lovely description. Each local church experiencing its joys and sorrows, successes and failures, 
just like our own, how important the local church is, how seriously we ought to take our belonging to it and our responsibilities towards it. Oh, the privilege of being a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, think of a person uh, longing uh, to be a member of some famous club or something. Um, a friend of mine uh, had to wait years and years and years uh, before being given fishing rights on uh, part of the River Towy. Uh, oh, think of the joy then of finally being allowed uh, to uh, get a place to fish on that famous river. But how much greater is the privilege of belonging to the church of Jesus Christ. I think about 31 years ago, uh, the Chernobyl disaster happened and a book has come out uh, a few years ago about what happened. And uh, during that disaster, uh, it was a dangerous job to try and clean up. Uh, and uh, there were people uh, given tasks uh, to clear the rubble. There were other people, the miners, who were allocated uh, the uh, dangerous job of digging tunnels under the reactor to try and cool it, to stop uh, a complete meltdown. And those men, they, they were paid a big amount for doing that, but they didn't expect to be paid for doing it. Uh, there, there was a saying uh, among uh, the Soviets, uh, it's written in English here, uh, it would have been in Russian, of course. Who if not we? Who if not we? And so these miners, they were patriots to the Soviet system, and they considered it an honour to dig into the poisoned radioactive earth and to put themselves at great danger because they were doing it for the Soviet system. Who, if not we? They didn't expect to be paid. They didn't expect to live for much longer. Uh, most of them died from radiation poisoning after a few years. Do we have the same pride in belonging not to some human ideology which has more or less come to an end, but to the church, the living church of Jesus Christ, which has stood for centuries? Who, if not you, who, if not I? We are Christ's, and what a privilege it is to serve such a saviour. I, you may say, there's nothing about membership of a local church in the word of God. Well, yes, you're right there, but surely it's implied. Because how can we become part of a local body, as it were, and support that body unless there's some kind of means to do that? Are you proud to be part of your church? And then there is something else here about the recipients of the letter. It's not just uh, these seven churches. If you look at chapter two, uh, at the start of each letter, it's addressed specifically to the angel of that church. 
Now, we saw before the summer that angel here doesn't mean a heavenly being. Angel means messenger. And that would have referred to the pastor of the church. How interesting. A pastor is a messenger. God, Jesus Christ, holds pastors in his hands. Uh, the angels are held in his hands. There's much confusion today, not just as to what a church is, but as to what pastors do. But surely here is the essence of the pastor. He is the minister. What does he minister? He ministers God's word, the messenger. God gives messages from his word to his servants. And his main duty is to minister that word, what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called the primacy of preaching. Of course, he ministers to it in one-to-one -one situations as well. But uh, when Dr. Martin first went to Sandfields, people said to him, what are you doing? You are leaving a lucrative career in medicine behind. You're not trained for the ministry. What are you going to do? And all he said to them was this, I've got a message. God has given me a message. And in a sense, that's what the ministry is all about. May our pastors be men with a message. That's what we need. Not just any message, but a message from the Lord. A message that has thus set the Lord attached to it. And what a privilege to be able to see God putting his hand on young men being raised to the ministry of the word. Let's not take these things for granted. Let's esteem our pastors highly for their work's sake. But you see, these letters are not just confined to the pastors of the seven particular churches in Asia Minor, are they? Uh, Revelation is symbolic in its language. Do you know what the word seven or the number seven signifies in Scripture? signifies completeness so it's not just seven churches in space and time it's the church throughout the ages whether it's a church in asia minor 2000 years ago or a church in south wales in the 21st century the church in one sense is the same throughout its history the same message the same essence as to what we do and the same saviour. Have you put your name down for next Sunday to attend the building? You know, there's another person who didn't have to put his name down who will be coming to that meeting. And that is none other than the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. And there is so much today in evangelicalism about different ideas of doing church. And sometimes there's a place for discussion. We must be bound by a particular tradition. But we can lose sometimes this one thing. It's not what you and I think about the church. It's not what you and I think about the ministry even. What does Jesus Christ have to say? I wonder, what will Jesus Christ have to say of our service next Sunday?
What will he think of our singing? What will he think of our praying? What will he think of our preaching? What will he think of our evangelism? What will he think of our ministering to one another? What is Jesus's view of the church? That's frightening and it is encouraging. So that's the first thing, the recipients. Jesus isn't just writing to seven churches that existed 2,000 years ago. He is writing to our church, to your church. Do you have a humility of mind, a spiritual receptivity to what the Spirit is saying in the Word? Isn't that what we should be praying every Sunday? Lord, speak to me through your servants, through the word. And then the second thing, the author of the letter. That's the other thing we look at. Not just who it's written to, but who has written it. Who is the author here? Let's look at our verses. In the first place, it's quite simple. John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. Uh, we've mentioned before, this is none other than the great Apostle John. He was well into his 80s by this stage in his life. Uh, he'd been banished to this island under the first wave of Roman persecution. It was going to get much, much worse. Uh, but who exactly was this Apostle John? Let, let me remind you. He was one of the 12 that had been with Jesus during his three years of earthly ministry. Not only was he one of the 12, he was one of the three closest to Jesus Christ. Not only was he one of the three closest, he was the beloved disciple who leaned on Jesus' bosom during the Last Supper, which we heard about this morning. All the others uh, of the three, Peter and James, even the great apostle Paul, who came in later, they've all gone to glory by now. Uh, this is towards the end of the first century. John is the last left alive of the great leaders of the church. He was the son of thunder. But the grace of Jesus Christ has transformed him into the beloved apostle of love. And how does he refer himself here? He says, John. Isn't that amazing? Not uh, John with a long list of letters uh, giving his qualifications. Oh, no. John. Uh, he puts it uh, differently, uh, but the same idea. Servants, verse 1, his servants. And then a little later on, verse 9, your brother and companion. Isn't that lovely? even beautiful, that this great man of God does not see himself in that way. Shouldn't we be like that? We have far, far less credentials, and yet we can be so overbearing. Uh, and then uh, look at uh, his age. He's well into his 80s. He hasn't retired He's still going on with the Lord, and he's even suffering for his Saviour in exile. 
what, what an amazing testimony. I, I'm thinking of the late William Roberts. What a, a life. Uh, carrying on preaching well into his 90s, just plodding on. Oh, that we would all end like that. And then, uh, if you look at John's track record, he was the pastor of Ephesus by the time he was in his 80s, right? Who was the first pastor at Ephesus? Who founded the church? None other than the Apostle Paul. And then who took over the church after Paul? Well, it was Paul's protege, Timothy, a young man. And it was only after Timothy that John was asked to pastor the church. Uh, this is how one commentator put it. John would have accepted the charge in order to complete someone else's work. And as the successor of a lesser figure, a younger man, Timothy, Many strong leaders today would have refused such a calling, putting a priority on their own career aspirations. But John didn't have any. Like his saviour, he humbled himself. And no task was too mean, too small for him to do. Are we like that? Uh, Duncan Campbell, the mighty man used in the revival in the Hebrides, in the middle of the 20th century, he would have no problems joining the men of the village, cutting peats. But John isn't just the author, is he? John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from who? From him who is and who was and who is to come, that's God the Father, and from the seven spirits, capital S, who are before his throne, God the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, God the Son. John's the pen. I've got a pen here. It's not a Mont Blanc, it's a cheap pen. Jo jo John was just the pen. The writer was the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are you, if you're a preacher, are you willing just to be the pen? And to have God holding on to you and using you. It doesn't matter how weak or strong you may be as the pen. It all depends on the hand that is holding the pen. So we'll just start looking tonight at this ultimate author. Yes, John, in many ways, is the one uh, physically writing. And John's personality is coming through. He's not being coerced, forced into writing. God isn't using him as a robot, but really the author and the author of all the Bible is God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Let's look at each one of those in turn. God, the Father. How is he described here? What an encouragement. If you're uh, being opposed for your faith, if you're beginning to suffer persecution, if the dark clouds of martyrdom are on the horizon, what do you need to know? You need to know something like this, don't you? From him who is and who was and who is to come. What's that about, you ask? Well, that's an echo of what God said to Moses when he revealed himself uh, to uh, that man of God. Moses was 80-ish years old. 
when God revealed himself to him at the burning bush and God said, I am that I am. What does that mean? It means I am self-sufficient. I depend on nothing. Everything depends on me. I depend on no one. Everybody depends on me. What a comfort. If you now are suffering persecution from the most powerful uh, of people, the Roman Empire, they're simply in God's hands. He's holding them. The great I am. Uh, this is one hymn. Jehovah, great I am, by earth and heaven confessed. I bow and blessed the sacred name, forever blessed. Are you having difficulties at this moment? Maybe not persecution, but things are tough, yeah? Do what C.S. Lewis uh, said in one of his books. Take a piece of paper and draw a line. It doesn't matter what kind of pen you use, draw a line on that paper. That line is time, uh, this world of time. It has a beginning, it has an end. You might think of that line as your lifetime, your lifespan. It has a beginning, it has an end. It's surrounded by that piece of paper, that eternity. That's where God is. From everlasting to everlasting. He's outside of time. All your little problems are in that world of time. God is over and around everything. He is holding you. Think of that line as a thread. You may feel at times that you're hanging on by the thinnest of threads. You worry that it's going to break. You may think that the church is like a thread at this moment in the West. It doesn't look very hopeful, does it, in terms of the future? And maybe after all of this lockdown and the virus, we will have been so thinned out that there's hardly anything left of the thread. But that's not the point. The point is who is holding on to the thread. It is none other than the great I am. And because we're in his hands, the everlasting hands, we're quite safe. And we can be blessed. Here's a quotation. As the early Christians faced what seemed to them an uncertain future. Maybe we face an uncertain future with the uh, work situation, with uh, finances, uh, with our churches, with our country. They had to keep before them the absolute certainty of God and his eternal rule. Threatened, opposed, and persecuted by those in power, they were nevertheless to rejoice in the knowledge of their eternal God and his unceasing rule over history. The great I am. This fever of a life, this thread is nothing. And we are in his hands. And even history is just his story. Aren't you proud to belong to his church? And then we'll just have time, I think, uh, to uh, look at um, the Holy Spirit and then uh, we'll sing our last hymn. 
why is the Holy Spirit referred to as the seven spirits who are before his throne? There is a reference there to Zechariah, for Zechariah had a vision of seven lamps, uh, the Holy Spirit in his fullness, a flowing grace and peace to his church, the fullness of the Spirit. It doesn't matter how empty we may feel, how insufficient we are in the face of the situation that's in front of us. By the Spirit of God, we will uh, overcome. Uh, not by might, said Zechariah a little later on, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Also in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon people and there are seven different operations. Again, the idea of completeness. So whatever you stand in need of, uh, who is sufficient for these things? The Spirit is, and he can give you the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. My friends, we don't need anything else. All of our resources in one sense is in Christ by his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's called the forgotten one because we often don't realize that we have the Spirit to tap into the vital place of prayer. Do, do, you, do you see grace and peace, salvation, not just the initial uh, act of being saved, but salvation being wrought throughout our life until it is perfected when we get to glory. It flows to us from the Father and the Son by the spirits. Spirits. That's how Jesus visits his people. Not physically. He will be doing that when he comes again. But in the meantime, by his spirits. By his spirits. And especially when we are in the furnace, in the fire, the Spirit comes and Christ, through his Spirit, makes himself precious. As individuals and as a church, when did we last pray for the Spirit? When did we last experience the love of Christ poured by the Spirit. When did you last know the peace that comes from the paraclete, the Spirit? Uh, if you read um, Dr. Martin, I think, in Romans, yes, it is Romans uh, 5 on assurance, he gives the example of Henry Venn. Henry Venn was an 18th century pastor and uh, mightily used of God. He lost his wife and he writes to the Countess of Huntingdon, a rich patron. I have lost all that I could wish myself to have been in the partner of my cares and joys. I have lost her when her soul was as a watered garden. Nevertheless, I can say, all is well. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth at all times and in everything pertaining to me, let him do what seemeth him good. And then he says, were there no Holy Ghost, were there no Holy Spirit now to strengthen me mightily? Were there nothing more 
than a dependence on the word of promise without an almighty power and agent to explain, impress and apply it. How would my hands hang down and my knees be so feeble that I should faint and fall under the pressure of my cross? Not just the bare word, but the spirits applying the word. But on the contrary, he says, I abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit given unto me. I rejoice in tribulation from the experience I now have more than I possibly could in a less severe trial. That the man of sorrows is as rivers of water in a dry place and giveth songs in the night. And Dr. Martin concludes, is not that very wonderful? The spirit, the seven, signifying fullness, completeness. Oh, what we're missing out on when we don't see this blessed person. This is what makes Christianity vital. When the world is trying to put us down, it has the opposite effect. If we are to be persecuted, we're not to pray for it, but we're not to panic either, because the persecution will purify the church and will, by the Spirit's blessing, cause the church to grow. Let me conclude with this hymn. Uh, Nigel Council, who went to be with the Lord uh, uh, in... Um, I think it was February time. Uh, he, many years ago, uh, was in our church. And I, either the singing or the quoting of this hymn, God, by his spirits, really spoke to Nigel. Come down. Do you know it? Come down, O love divine. Whether you're on Patmos, whether you're in lockdown, whether you're having difficulties, whether things are going well, come down. O love divine, seek thou this soul of mine and visit it with thine own ardour glowing, this fire, this power. O comforter, draw near, within my heart appear and kindle it, thy holy flame bestowing. What changed John, the son of thunder, into such a sweet, humble apostle of love? Listen, let holy charity that's another word for love. Mine outward vesture be, my outward clothing, and lowliness become mine inner clothing, true lowliness of hearts, which takes the humbler parts, even if you're a great apostle, and o'er its shortcoming weeps with loathing. I believe in God, the Holy spirits do you may we as a church be a church that does not forget the third person of the trinity indeed that worships the triune god even in days of difficulty for his name's sake